I'm Tammy Faraday, and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about incredible people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit, and grace. When Hilary Whittington discovers she's expecting a baby girl, she and her husband Jeff are deliriously overjoyed. Pink and white nursery, check. Endless supplies of dresses and bows, check. Then, only months after Ryland is born, Hilary and Jeff realise something isn't quite right. When they call out, Ryland doesn't respond. After consulting with specialists, it's confirmed that their beautiful baby girl is deaf. The miracle that his cochlear implants allows Ryland to hear, and Hilary's tireless efforts helps Ryland learn how to speak. This gorgeous couple believe they've overcome their toughest challenge as parents. But as soon as Ryland learns to talk, Hilary and Jeff know they have to listen. I mean, really listen. Because as soon as Ryland gains the power of speech, Ryland insists, I am a boy. The breaking point was a moment that I'll never forget. And it's hard not to cry when I think about it. Ryland looked at me and said, Mom, when the family dies, I will cut my hair. So basically, Ryland wanted to wait until we were no longer here so that he didn't have to disappoint us by cutting his hair. After finding a deeply disturbing statistic that 41% of people who identify as transgender attempt to take their own lives before the age of 20, Hillary and Jeff make it their mission to love and support their child with no strings attached. But please be under no illusion. Loving with no strings attached isn't always easy. Sometimes it's downright agonising and can be oh so isolating. And that's what's so exquisite about the Whittingtons. They simply tell it like it is. I hope you come to love this family as much as I do. This is Hillary's story. If anything you hear during this episode is triggering in any way, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. And please remember, if you're in Australia, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 131114. That's 131114. Welcome, Hilary. It is so lovely to have you here. You actually have no idea how much I've been looking forward to our conversation. You have no idea. Oh, I have been too. Thank you for having me. If it's okay with you, just like you did in your exquisite memoir, Raising Ryland, Parenting a Transgender Child with No Strings Attached, I'll refer to Ryland prior to his transition using female pronouns. And then at the point where Ryland transitions to the male gender, I'll use male pronouns, which everyone who now knows him does today. How does that sound? Sounds great. Hilary, you meet your husband, Jeff, when you're 21 and he's 26, and the attraction is instant and mutual. What is it about him that makes you know you want to spend your life with him? You know, from some of the very first moments, he I could just tell right away he had a very genuine heart, and he made it very clear that his family was one of his number one priorities. I knew that he was smart. He had just finished his master's degree in engineering. And I knew he was motivated because he just seemed very driven. He wanted to work hard and um, we had very similar priorities about our future. And I just 
I don't know. I mean, he's obviously very handsome and that was an initial attraction, but more than anything, I could just tell he was a kind, loving, genuine man. And that drew me to him right away. Jeff is clearly your safe place and you confide in him about your beloved brother, Ryan. What do you share with him? When we first met, I just was honest with him about the rough road that I had been on. My brother struggled very much with depression and that led to him using drugs and alcohol. It was a really rough childhood just because I spent a lot of time worrying about him and not knowing what the future held. And so there was just a lot of uncertainty that surrounded my brother. It was hard because I couldn't control my brother's safety. And I just knew that there was a good chance that my brother may not survive very long with the type of lifestyle that he was living. Jeff was just always very supportive of my brother and me. He just, he loved both of us, but I think he was my rock when I had to cry about those things. You actually break it off temporarily with Jeff when you think he's a little bit spooked by how smitten you are. But you do get back together, which culminates in his proposal to you during the week of your college graduation. I'm looking at the smile on your face now as if it just happened a minute ago. It's so lovely. It's so lovely. And as much as you adore your brother, Ryan, you're reluctant to include him in your wedding party because of what I assume is his erratic behaviour. But Jeff urges you to and says you will regret it if you don't. And Ryan actually credits your wedding as being the very best day of his life. What are your memories of Ryan on your wedding day? Oh, this will make me cry. He was just so happy. He was so proud of me. He just really loved me and always bragged about me as a sister and how I was smart. And I'm so glad that I did include him in that day because I can't even imagine living with myself if I hadn't. I guess I was just so afraid of him embarrassing me in front of my new family, not meaning to embarrass me, but I just because, you know, he did overconsume alcohol and he would do things a little bit erratic. You know, at the end of the day, I loved him very, very much. And he was a best friend to me throughout my life. And I just can't even imagine how devastating that would have been if I hadn't included him and made him part of our wedding party. And shortly after your wedding, you and Jeff are having a really difficult time trying to find your way as a married couple, which is very common, by the way. And you decide to take some time apart when tragedy unfolds. What happens, Hillary? Yeah, so Jeff and I were struggling just like any other couple when we first started off. Jeff was back in school to be a paramedic firefighter, and we had moved in with his parents to save money because it was very expensive. And I'm going to stop you there. As magnificent as your in-laws might be, isn't moving in with them possibly like a guarantee <laughs> that you're going to have some marital strain? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> seriously. I, I, seriously. I had taken so much pride in the fact that I, once I left for college at 18, I was always able to take care of myself. I managed to work full-time and go to school and pay for my rent and be very independent from a very young age. And so when I entered the marriage, I had this vision and that vision changed. And I, I was a little angry, I guess you could say, frustrated that 
I had worked so hard all of my life to be independent. And then I felt that I was now going backwards and relying on family. And I had Jeff's mom asking me when I'd be home, of course, like any parent would. And it was just, wasn't great. But at the time Jeff was in fire Academy and he was gone a lot. And I look back on it now and I'm really glad that we were there because when I got that phone call that my brother had been in a car accident. In fact, at the time I was in EMT school and I was working to get my license. I I was really fascinated by the medical world and wanted to be a part of it. And I had learned that if there was a car accident and there was at least one person that had passed in the car, there was a high likelihood that the other people had injuries that could lead to death. So when I knew that my brother had been in a car accident that night, I had already moved out of Jeff's parents' house and I hadn't told anybody that we were taking a break. And it was an awful, awful night. Um, I tried to call Jeff when I got that phone call and he wouldn't answer because we weren't getting along. And so I just kept calling and calling and eventually he answered and I got a hold of him. But it was terrible, you know, to learn that my brother died. It was the worst moment of my life, really. But you see, this is where the remarkable nature of your connection is demonstrated in full force. Because when Jeff hears the unspeakable news of your brother's tragic passing, what does he say to you that makes you know, A, he's a beautiful human being, and B, that the two of you will make it as a couple? I don't remember everything he said to me, but I do remember him saying to me, we should name our firstborn child after your brother. And that obviously just meant the world to me. It made me realize he knew that he wanted to help me keep my brother's memory alive. And he wanted to be with you. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the things that I was upset about in our marriage just melted away because in that moment, you just realize how precious life is and all the little things that we get upset about over time. (laughs) So meaningless in the big picture. I mean, what really matters is loving each other and being together. And and really, you don't need a house over your head to, to be in love and have a strong relationship. And I think it made me realize that the things that I was hung up on were just very small pieces of the picture. And I had a wonderful man in front of me. Hillary, in April 2007, you discover that you're pregnant with a baby girl and you name her Ryland in honour of your late brother. And this truly exquisite little girl seems beyond perfect in every way. But near her first birthday, you begin to have concerns. Yeah, as a new parent, I didn't know anything other than my experience at that time. And there were very small indicators that Ryland wasn't hearing correctly. But as a new parent, I sort of brushed that off and thought, well, Rylan was just a selective listener. And I would sort of convince myself that Rylan could hear. But I think all parents don't want to believe that there's something awry with their child. And I don't want to say something wrong with their child because, you know, a lot of children who are born deaf, a lot of the deaf community does not believe that being deaf is a handicap or a disadvantage. But I will say that being a hearing parent and having a deaf child to me was devastating because 
I just had these images in my head of my child sitting at the Thanksgiving table with our family and not being able to participate in the conversations. And I just didn't want to believe that there was something wrong. And so I had picked up the phone on multiple occasions to call the doctor and I talked myself out of it because I was on hold for too long or whatever it was. I sort of just kept pretending that it was okay and convincing myself that Ryland could hear. And these concerns though are compounded when your in-laws, Jeff's parents, also raise the alarm about Ryland's hearing. What are they noticing? So they would watch Ryland one day a week while I was working and they started to notice things weren't quite right. One day Jeff's dad said to me, Hillary, you really have to get this checked out, that there's something wrong. And so I got on the phone that day and phoned the doctor and they said, you can come on down. And Jeff was at the fire department that day. He was working 24-hour shifts, brought Ryland down to the doctor's office. And I remember the doctor saying to me not to lose any sleep over this, that it was probably just fine. And that normally the doctor wouldn't order certain tests until a child was much older. But because I was concerned, he would go ahead and order the tests. And I just will never forget him saying, and not for me not to lose any sleep over this, because at that point I was finally accepting that something was truly not right. And so I remember going home that night and when Rylan was sleeping, I would um, bang pots and pans over her head and there was no movement. And it just sort of all came crashing down. And I started to remember how I would walk in the room and and normally a child would hear their mom's voice and they would turn their head. But if Ryland didn't have her head looking at me, wouldn't see that I was there, know that I was there. So it was a rough night. I will say that. But when Jeff got off his shift, we had started to do all of our own tests and we had come to the conclusion that Ryland was not getting any sound. Once the diagnosis is made, because this doctor was kind and recognised your concern and said, we're going to expedite these tests, even though we're not going to probably do them ordinarily till the child's 18 months. What's the journey that your family then embark on once you have this firm diagnosis? I mean, obviously right away, I enrolled in sign language classes and I had friends that had told me even prior to this diagnosis that I should have Rylan involved in baby sign language classes. But uh, can I interrupt? I hate interrupting you. No, that's okay. That is so anomalous. I mean, anomalous or serendipitous or whatever, because you were enrolling in a sign language class, which had nothing to do with even a suspicion of hearing loss. It's something that is a class where parents whose babies obviously don't communicate because none of them are talking, the children are able to sign whether they're hungry, whether they're tired, whether they need to go to the bathroom, whatever. And so it streamlines the ability to communicate with the infant. Yep. But you were doing this in anticipation of at that time, nothing. You were just doing it because your friend was doing it. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. That gave you a head start really in terms of inhabiting this world. Absolutely. And again, I had had some suspicions that there was something, but even before I had suspicions, I was being told by friends that it's a really great idea for communication. And honestly, I cannot say enough about signing with children before they're able to speak. I think it helps develop their communication skills when they do get the ability to make sounds and make words. It's unbelievable 
what children are capable of learning before they're able to speak and how much it helps their brain development. And even children who have other setbacks, autism or other other learning situations, I think it's it's great for children who are typical and also children who have other challenges. I think it's a great thing. So we actually got Rylan's deaf diagnosis while we were in baby sign language classes. Um, I took it one step further once I had that diagnosis and I enrolled in, in actual college level sign language classes because I needed to step it up even more. But Rylan had learned, I want to say over 350 signs by the time he ever had access to sound, which was obviously much later, but we just kept going with the sign language and he was like a sponge. He just soaked it all up and could have conversations, you know, without being able to speak. It was unbelievable. I'm not even sure exactly how we discovered cochlear implants. I want to say that Jeff discovered them. We didn't know that they even existed when we first embarked upon this journey. And we were trying to figure out how to help Rylan in any way we could. But we didn't want to get our hopes up because a lot of times it depends on why a child is deaf. If there's certain anatomy that isn't there or if it's nerve damage or various other things, then a child may not be able to receive a cochlear implant. So we we discovered that, that that it was a possibility, but we again, we didn't want to get our hopes up until we knew for certain where Ryland's hearing loss came from and if he was a candidate for it. So we also discovered during that time that cochlear implants are very controversial in the deaf community. And the deaf community was pretty angry towards hearing parents who sought out cochlear implants for their children because in their mind, they're very proud of their community and they don't feel like they have a handicap or disability. So it was one of those things where we knew that Ryland would have instant enemies and we would have instant enemies within a certain community if he were to go forward and be able to get cochlear implants. So that was a really interesting discovery because it was one of those mama bear moments where we had to decide what was best for Ryland and make that decision for our family. And the way that we looked at, at it was if he, one day Ryland decided that he wanted to be part of the deaf community and be deaf, he could just take off those implants and be a full-fledged member of the community. But if we didn't give him that opportunity, then your brain will rewire over time if you don't have any sound coming in. And it's much harder for adults who have been deaf their whole life. It's much harder for them to be successful with cochlear implants if you don't start um, activating those parts of the brain early. So in our mind, we move forward with cochlear implants knowing that it was a very big possibility that Ryland may not want to have them one day and we were okay with that. But at least we gave him that option to decide on his own. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because people are under the illusion that if cochlear implants are surgically implanted, that the child is no longer deaf. Well, the child is certainly deaf because you take them off, as you've said, and the child cannot hear or the adult cannot hear. Right. It's like glasses. I mean, glasses are an aid, but you take them off. And if you have impaired sight, as I did for the first 31 years of my life and before I had surgery, I was legally blind. So it was a re- very strange experience because before I had the laser surgery, I was not allowed to wear contact lenses, which I had worn for so many years. Contact lenses can artificially make you feel like you see like everybody else. Right. And in the two weeks leading up to the surgery, I'm like, I can't see a thing. 
Wow. And it reminded me of how profoundly diminished my eyesight was. So yes, it's quite an extraordinary take on it that the deaf community would be averse to you looking for whatever interventions would be possible to give Ryland an additional opportunity. But that was absolutely pushback that you received then. Maybe it was uh, prescient of what was to come. I don't know. Yep. But when Ryland's activation day arrives, we've all seen these gorgeous videos on YouTube in the instances where it's wonderful, where parents are beaming and the cochlear implants are finally turned on and the child has sound for the first time. And it's miraculous, but it doesn't always work that way. And unfortunately, in Ryland's case, I think the levels were awry and therefore it was painful. I mean, it would be absolutely excruciating for a child who's never heard a sound to hear something at such a ridiculously cacophonous level. But once the levels are adjusted, you feel like you're in a race against time to make up for two years of lost hearing and speech. Hilary, what's involved in trying to bridge that gap? Yeah, you know, it's funny. People think that you have these implants, you turn them on and boom, everything is back to normal. But the hard work actually begins once a child is activated and they get access to that sound because now you have to teach the brain where all of these sounds are coming from, what they mean. You don't just automatically know that the sound of a dog barking is coming from a dog's mouth. You have to actually teach a child all of those things. And so I basically had a full-time job ahead of me trying to catch Rylan up to speed. And again, it was very hard to not know also why they weren't working at first and why we had to bribe Rylan with them. I would have to give him candy to put them on. And, and as a parent, I just trusted that the medical team had programmed them correctly and that everything was good to go. I had no idea that Rylan was actually uncomfortable from these cochlear implants. And it took a while for us to seek a second opinion. And it's a very niche space because for one, there's not a lot of kids out there with cochlear implants. For two, there's not a lot of providers that know how to program them. And we were very lucky that we lived in a place where there's one of the best audiologists around. People travel and fly from all over the world to see her. And because we were privileged enough to have family help to pay for this specialist, because at the time we were living on a firefighter's income. San Diego is very expensive to live here. And it was very expensive to have that first appointment with a specialist outside of our insurance. I think it was about $1,000. And thankfully we had family help to get that appointment. And once we had that appointment, it was unbelievable. Rylan wasn't able to say Dada, for instance, because he was hearing it differently. He would say Wawa. And we tried so hard to teach Rylan Dada. But with cochlear implants, a child will say how they hear it. And seconds out of leaving that office, Rylan said Dada for the first time. And it was unbelievably moving for us because we had tried so hard. But, but yeah, I was very involved. I had multiple appointments a day all over the county with Ryland, even just candidate to get this surgery. You have to prove that Ryland wouldn't be successful with hearing aids. And there's just a lot that goes into it. And it's funny, I forget it was so long ago, but it was very taxing on me just to try and get him where he needed to be for all of these different appointments and then for them to, not to work and then for me to discover that he was actually in pain. I mean, it was a rough road, let me tell you. 
And Jeff was really working around the clock at this time. So you carried this load pretty much exclusively, and that's not in any way to denigrate your lovely husband. It's just to suggest that you were really carrying this. Yeah, absolutely. You can't expect a a babysitter or anyone really to do what I had to do during that time. I mean, multiple appointments a day, there was no provider I could find that really would be able to do what needed to be done during that time. And luckily we were able to buckle down and Jeff was able to support us so I could be at home with Ryland and get him where I needed to be. And almost as soon as Ryland is able to hear your words and communicate with you verbally, there's something Ryland really needs to say and something Ryland really needs you to hear. Yes. I want to say it was around three years old. I just remember Ryland starting to gravitate towards more masculine types of things, colors, toys, all of those things. So Ryland gravitated towards more quote-unquote tomboy things. But I remember Ryland was in a, a deaf and hard of hearing preschool He was little and he would get off the little school bus and he would run directly for our closet when he got home and he would go into Jeff's side of the closet and put on all of Jeff's clothes. And I thought it was super cute. But the thing that really stuck with me and concerned me was that Rylan would come out of the closet and he would say, mommy, please don't tell anybody about this. And so there was shame very, very, very early on. And he, it was unlike Rylan knew that what he was doing wasn't quote unquote, right, you know, um, for him to be doing. It was like, it was a little bit, I don't know, just it it wasn't typical behavior. Even as a small child, he sort of knew that. And he would say, mommy, please don't tell anybody this. He would say a lot. I am a boy. And we would keep correcting him. No, Rylan, you're a girl. You have a insert body part here. You're like mommy. And you could just see that the wheels were turning in Rylan's head and there was a disconnect, but there was so much happening during that time. It was not just that. It was all day, every day, things were happening where I would have to keep correcting Ryland and telling Ryland, you're a girl. And that continued for a long period mm-hmm. of time. But when Ryland would come home and run into Jeff's side of the closet and dress him up in Jeff's clothes, you refer to it as a huge red flag mm-hmm. because you're starting to recognize that things about Ryland's behaviour and self-expression make you feel uncomfortable. And as Ryland's fascination with her masculine preferences develops, she begins to test you to gauge what you will and you won't accept. Absolutely. And so it's pretty confronting when you see a little child not just playing dress-ups but expressing their internalised shame. Right. And I'll, I'll admit I fell into that box. I wanted those compliments. I loved it when people would say to me, oh, you have such a pretty little girl. Look at her bows. They match her dress. And I I engaged in all of that activity. As a mom, of course, I loved having the matching bows and these cute little ruffly outfits. And those things started to change once Rylan was able to sort of express herself more at that time. We had a few little friends around that were that were boys and Ryland would find ways to go play with their toys and maybe try on one of their outfits or you know just little things and there was one little boy at Ryland's preschool and Ryland would love having playdates with this little boy and I remember Ryland had an accident and the grandma this little boy let us borrow some Star Trek 
underwear. And Rylan was just beaming to be able to wear these little boy underwear and shorts. We got some hand-me-downs from some of the little boys around, and I could not get Rylan out of some of these hideous outfits because he would sort of piece together whatever he could find that was masculine looking. And it was just a hot mess. I mean, we had the most ridiculous looking outfits. And I started to, again, fall into that trap from society where I wanted to be seen as the mom that had this cute little matching daughter. And it it was starting to kind of dwindle away from me. And I was sort of losing control of that narrative. And it was hard. It was really hard. And so Rylan caught on to my disdain for some of those outfits that he wanted to wear. And it was like a negotiation. And it's embarrassing to say that because I think as as a society, we look at parents and we say to ourselves, get a hold of your child. You know, you're in control. You're the mom. You're the dad. You tell your child what to do. You tell them what the rules are. And And I will say that I was one of those people. I would see, you know, kids having meltdowns in the supermarket and I would just sort of cross my eyes and think, oh, geez, that parent has no control until you're in that position and you start to realize, oh, my goodness, there could be so many other things going on with this poor child. They could have anything else. And that was really hard for me as a mom because I I felt like I was a really good mom, but I really was losing control. It was like a full-time job. I would warn Ryland leading up to Easter or Christmas or some of the holidays. I would say, okay, this is the outfit we're going to wear in two weeks. I'll give you a prize. And I was like almost bribing Ryland because I knew it was going to be such a challenge. You're so exquisitely vulnerable, which is why I really love you. And it's really funny because when we spoke a week ago, I don't have a porch and I don't really drink wine, but the thought of sitting with you on the porch and drinking wine and talking about motherhood and everything else under the sun seems like the most glorious concept. I mean it so sincerely, Hilary, but you are so exquisitely vulnerable, really, and you don't sugarcoat anything which makes you such a such a magnet of a person Mm. because people can relate to your story because you're not pretending it's something that it isn't. Thank you. And you're not here to say that any of this is easy and you've come out the other side unaffected. You're very candid about how this starts to create conflict between you and Jeff, but you are a warrior of a mother. Thank you. And you vow after discovering Ryland's hearing loss that you'll never, ever ignore important signs again when it comes to your children, no matter how painful. But it's not to suggest, and that's something that I want to talk to you about, it's not at all to suggest for even a second that other people's judgments don't hurt and don't often bring you to your knees. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Deep down, we all sort of care a little bit about what people think. And it's taken me a long time to get to where I'm at now. But I think back then I was trying to win the approval of my family, my friends, everybody. You want to be seen as someone who has it together. And I can honestly say this was something I didn't even have on my radar. From the very beginning, I thought, well, I think I might have a lesbian as a daughter. And I was completely okay with that. But there were things that were going on that I just thought deep down there's something more happening here and I don't have the answers. And there was nothing in the media. There weren't books on this. There was really not much out there for a resource. And 
I felt like I was all alone, really. I, I knew that my child was suffering internally. I could see the pain. It wasn't um, a child who was being defiant. It was pain. You can tell as a mom when your child is crying from hunger or pain or whatever, if they're just in a bad mood. But I could tell that there was something seriously going on. And I think I credit the hearing loss situation. I almost credit that journey with allowing me one opportunity to really get to know Rylan because I was with him all the time. And so I really got to know Rylan as a child and, and I could see that it was something more. And that was one of the reasons that I was able to dig deeper and really try to understand that this wasn't just sexuality. Children aren't thinking about sexuality at three, four and five years old, but I didn't know that. And I didn't know anything about gender either. I had met transgender people, adults at that point in my life. And I had no idea that it was even a possibility for a child to be transgender. There were no books. There really wasn't much out there. And during this time, Jeff was gone quite a bit trying to be our breadwinner. And I was seeing things that he wasn't seeing. And he just, we sort of started to divide. He was very much, he didn't want to think about something else being wrong with Rylan. I think he thought that if he just ignored it, it would go away. But this was not going away and it gets, it just continued to get worse. The breaking point was a moment that I'll never forget. And it's hard not to cry when I think about it. I was putting together some holiday cards. Uh, obviously it was around November, December and Rylan was about five, four or five. And I had this little return address label that had little pictures of our family. So for Jeff, it was, you know, a dad looking character with like reindeer, ears on or something. And then for my character, I had like a Santa hat. And so for Rylan's character, I had chosen a cowboy hat because at the time, go figure, Rylan loved cowboy hats. (laughs) And Rylan, but of course the character had long blonde hair, which is what Rylan had at the time. And Rylan comes in and looks at me and looks down at the, the, the labels and says, mom, how could you do this to me? And was just really horrified by what Rylan was seeing. And I said, what do you mean? What what did I do to you? And Rylan says, why did you make me look like a girl? I really had no words at that point. I just said, Rylan. And I just looked right in Rylan's eyes. And I said, honey, because you are a girl. And Rylan ran out of the room and just started crying, was just very upset. And I kind of left it alone. I just thought, well, you know, it is what it is. And then I got Rylan ready for bed that night. And I was tucking Rylan in And Rylan looked at me and said, mom, when the family dies, I will cut my hair. So basically Rylan wanted to wait until we were no longer here so that he didn't have to disappoint us by cutting his hair. I can't even imagine what you went through when your little boy says to you, who at the time was your little girl, and says, when the family dies, can I have my hair cut? Because again, being the human being that you are and the most remarkable mother you just did a stock take in that moment. You just saw your child and you said, you don't have to wait till any of us die. That's Mm -hmm. when you said, I'll cut your hair right now. You're right. And that was kind of an eye opener for me. I thought, what child says that he was going to wait until we were gone to be who he really was? That was unbelievable. And again, that was Rylan prior to transitioning. So she at the time. So Rylan then at that point takes off his ears and just cries himself to sleep. 
And that's Ryland's sort of sign that he's done as he takes off his cochlear implants, throws them. That was it. Just started crying. And so as soon as Ryland was asleep, I just started crying. I, I thought, I cannot do this anymore. There is just so much happening. And Jeff didn't want to talk about it. I felt like I was all alone. And the next morning, that's when Ryland got up and said, Mom, why did God make me like this? And so it was at that moment, you know, I'd been going through hell, really leading up to that point, trying to make everything right and trying to make Ryland's life as easy as I could, but then also trying to be a role model and a mom and in control of everything. And I finally just realized, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I had done my research at that point and I had seen that the attempted suicide rate for trans people was astronomical. I think it was like 41%. And that's a really high percentage. If that was any other population of people, that's not acceptable. And it was a real reality at that point that if I didn't help Rylan, that there's a good chance that I might not have a child anymore if I didn't do something. And so, yeah, I think that was for me that sort of the, the pivotal moment that I realized that I was willing to even divorce Jeff if I had to in order to help my child because I just couldn't deal with letting them have this much pain. I have to punctuate this conversation here because I also want to add one other thing. Whilst I love men, including and especially the one I married, there's nothing like a mother's intuition or level of care or insight. Nothing. And I've been shot down in flames more times than I care to remember for what's perceived to be my overreaction or feeling a need to intervene or insisting on a second opinion. And in every single instance, I was right. And it's not about being right. And it's not about being a helicopter parent. It's about having this innate pact once you become a mother, mm -hmm. which is I will never leave a stone unturned when it comes to my child's happiness mm -hmm. and health and well-being. And guess what, beloved Hillary? I'm not alone because every single mother I know, friends, family, you name it, they operate under this same pact. Mm -hmm. It's never discussed. You brought these children into the world and this is your reason for being. So it doesn't make Jeff neglectful. It just means that you were at the coalface every single day. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to overdwell on this, but the fact that your husband was trying to create a second career in the fire department meant that he really was away a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So you do see the pain and you do see the strain and you do understand, as you said so articulately, you didn't have a defiant child. You didn't have a disobedient child. Ryland wasn't a hellraiser. It was just on one singular issue, mm -hmm. which was the clothes that she wore mm -hmm. and it was how she presented herself in, in the world. Mm -hmm. But I just feel like we are denigrated as mothers yep. because we know that there's something not right. Right. It's not because we're looking for it. It's because we actually can identify when a child is really struggling. Yep. I 100% agree with you. Whichever parent is with the child more also gets to know that child more. And, and, you know, Jeff and I had made that decision that he would work and I would stay home. And so I did, I had a much closer relationship to Rylan than, than Jeff did. And with that came a, a much better understanding of what was happening. Jeff didn't have the experiences that I had during that time. And I wasn't even able to really verbalize them and give them enough justice because I got to see the pain and hear the pain and feel it with my being. And as a mother, you and no mother likes to see their child, like you said, struggling. It's our job. I feel like it's our duty when we bring 
a human into this world to to care for them and be there and protect them and and we're all they have they're vulnerable people yeah. it changes you it changes you profoundly and forever and i know it's very cliched and i don't love cliches like you really are only as happy as your saddest child oh yeah so true by this point jeff questions whether you're enabling rylan's choices if not actually actively encouraging them. And you've all but had it. You've had it with what you perceive to be disappointing everyone, especially as Christmas nears. So you put Jeff in charge of picking out Ryland's Christmas outfit. And this turns out to be a watershed moment, especially for Jeff. Why? Yeah, so I had been in charge of the clothing and everything really at that point when it came to Rylan. And so I don't think Jeff was able to really understand what I had been going through. And so I thought that it would be a great opportunity for him to live a day in my shoes and see what I was dealing with on the daily and just trying to come up with an outfit that was acceptable to Jeff's family who, you know, they can be formal people, the classic Dinner time is formal setting and everybody dresses nicely and it's sort of that that classic scenario. And so I knew that we had to find an outfit that was acceptable and appropriate and nice. And a lot of the times for little girls, that boils down to a dress or a skirt and leggings. And I knew that it was going to be absolute hell on earth to get Rylan into a dress and leggings at that time. And it would ruin the whole experience, to be honest with you. They had a really rough time at the mall trying to figure out what this outfit was going to be. And um, Jeff got to see with his own two eyes what I was dealing with. Yeah. And I think that was the first time that he actually was vulnerable. And I saw him break down and cry. We were laying on the bed and he sort of just broke down and started crying. And you don't really see your husband break down crying. I had never seen him do that before. And I think it sort of humanized the experience for me too, because I was so angry with him for not listening to me and not wanting to face this. And I I think it was in that moment that I actually had a lot of empathy for Jeff. And I felt like part of the reason he didn't want to face this was because it was so painful for him to know that this was true. This really was something that wasn't going away. So yeah, that was a very emotional point in time. And I think for me, it was pivotal in in having a little bit more empathy for Jeff and what he was going through because he was actually having to face it, you know? You discover that the word tomboy is the quickest, easiest way to describe Ryland and protect her and, dare I say, you from people's expectations and judgments. But can you explain the difference between a child who has tomboy inclinations and a child who's transgender? Yeah, I mean, it was easier for me to say Rylan was a tomboy because I think people could just sort of wrap their heads around that more easily. But it was more than that. It wasn't just a child who wants to play with quote unquote boy things or masculine items and and wear clothes that were typically for little boys. It was like a deep sense of who Rylan was. It was how we saw Ryland. The only way for me to really explain this to adults is just like this. I can say to you, Tam, it's like you right now. You're beautiful. You have your long blonde hair and, you know, your makeup and, you know, your nails and everything. 
Okay, so tomorrow morning, let's just pretend that Tam, you go to bed as Tam as you are right now. Tomorrow morning, you wake up and your body has completely fooled you. And now all of a sudden you have hair on your chest, masculine arms and short hair and, you know, a deep voice. And you have to live the rest of your life as Tam the man. The whole world sees you as this muscular, hairy, deep voiced man, but you still have the same brain that you have right now. You still feel like Tam. That's exactly how trans people feel every single day because in their head, in their hearts, in their mind, in the depths of their soul, they feel like Rylan. He, he felt like he was a male. He was a boy, but his body outwardly said something different. So yeah, his body betrayed him and, and that's horrible. And think about how horrible that would be as a child feeling that way. And then all of a sudden to be facing puberty, you know what I mean? So anyhow, if that helps some of your listeners, that's my best way to describe the difference between a tomboy, which would be a little girl that is okay being a little girl, you know, and, and likes being a girl, but just really enjoys wearing masculine things and playing with masculine things. It's, it's a totally different scenario. And this only got stronger for Ryland. This is, wasn't something that was a phase because often it's said that if a child has tomboy proclivities, that it's a phase. It's for a finite period of time and it dissipates. Well, this was no phase. This was something that just got louder and stronger and more definitive as Ryland grew. But also children will start to pick up on their parents' feelings around things. And I think deep down, we all have this innate sense to want to make our parents and our caregivers and our family and friends happy. And so even though there is this insistence, consistence, and persistence, there's also this need and want and desire to make the people that love them happy. And so children are very smart. You know, they may have these feelings early on, but they start to pick up on the fact that it's not okay to do these things or feel this way in front of their loved ones. And so you may have a trans kid that that really struggles because they want to make their family happy. And I think Rylan even dealt with this, like saying he would wait until we were gone, until we were dead, so that he could be a boy. I mean, that is a clear indicator right there that he did not want to disappoint us. And God love him for that. But how sad that you can't be yourself because you want to make everyone else around you feel okay, feel comfortable. I mean, that's what was the struggle. That was a struggle that was going on. And hence the profound internalized shame. Yep. Which is why he didn't want you to, I'm saying he now, but when he was a girl, he did not want you to share with anybody that you found him every day changing into his dad's clothes. Yep. Because he was certainly aware that this is not what mummy and daddy want. Exactly. This is not acceptable to society. Exactly. You become increasingly isolated. You decline most invitations and you see that Ryland, who's accepted for her ears, as you call her cochlear implant so beautifully, is most definitely not being accepted for her male presentation, even at such an incredibly young age. But because you're you and the remarkable mother that you are, you say... If our circle of friends has to shrink in order for me to raise Ryland in love, then so be it. But again, between the saying and the living that are two very different realities. And you did live that and you did embody that, but it was very, very, very hard. Yeah, it was. I knew that certain relationships would flounder 
if Rylan had actually made that transition. You know, it was it was one thing for Rylan to be our tomboy child and it was actually celebrated. It's funny how much it was celebrated, actually. The fire department guys that Jeff worked with thought it was so cool that Jeff had a daughter that wanted to go rock climbing and hiking and do all of the fun, typically male-type things. But that's where it stopped. The second that Ryland transitioned to being our son, that's where they thought it got, quote-unquote, weird. Because in their eyes, it was a cool thing to have a little girl that wanted to do those things, but it was not a cool thing to allow your daughter to become your son, especially at that age and at that time in history. What are we talking about here? We're talking about maybe around 2011? Yeah, it was during that year that we actually allowed Ryland to transition. And it was not easy. It was, it was something that we struggled with a long time. In fact, even when we started seeing a specialist about this who told us that this needed to happen in order to help Ryland emotionally, I remember my husband asking our therapist, do you think we could just wait until the end of the year for Ryland to transition? Because it would just kind of be easier for him to like start off in a new fresh class in a new fresh school. And the therapist said, I don't think that's a good idea. The longer you wait to allow Ryland to be his authentic self, the more emotional harm this is going to cause. And so we sort of knew that we had this mountain in front of us and it was going to be so much harder that Ryland showed up at school one day as Ryland with she pronouns. And then the next day Ryland showed up at school with he pronouns and a short haircut. And we needed Ryland to be seen as a boy halfway through the school year. We knew that was going to be rough. But the specialist was absolutely insistent because she said that the longer that you wait to validate this child, the more damage that's going to be done. Yep. You and Jeff attend a parent support group and you hear of multiple accounts of teenagers who despise their bodies so vehemently that many of them refuse to bathe because of their self-disgust. And you also learn how common it is for a father to experience a great deal more turmoil about accepting a transgender child than a mother does. What do you think explains that? Typically, mothers have a little bit more emotion and willingness to sort of be flexible and get deep on things. I think I think dads sometimes struggle with that a little bit more. And maybe it's kind of common for, for men to teach their sons not to cry, for men to teach boys to be tough and keep on going and get up and don't cry about it. And Jeff was sort of fell into that trap too, especially at his job where you don't talk about the struggles and the sadness and the grief. You just sort of brush yourself off and keep going. And I think it's such a disservice because there was so much emotion and so much pain that was being bottled up inside of Jeff. There was really not a safe place anywhere in his life for him to really let that out, except for, you know, those moments with me But, you know, it's just a little harder for men to be vulnerable at times. And I think so I convinced him to go to this support group and he wasn't happy about it. On the way there, I remember him saying, "Okay, I'll go and I'll listen, but I'm not saying anything, which is another indicator that he just wasn't ready to be vulnerable. But, yeah, we were sitting in this support group and it was very small. And mind you that this is not something that's publicized. It was at that time and it still is a, a safety concern to be part of a support group like this. And so I sort of had to be vetted to even figure out where the location was and how to get there. And 
we're in this circle of parents and, and Jeff is listening. And this one dad turns to Jeff and he says, you have no idea how lucky you are to be here right now. And Jeff was really taken back by that comment. And he says, well, what do you mean? And the dad says, you know, we had all of the same signs that you have right now. And we just told our child, no, this was not happening. And we shut it down and our child got older. And then our child started to go through puberty and oh my goodness, you know that, yeah, like you said, there's children that are cutting themselves now, have emotional trauma that is just almost irreversible, you know, because they've been told that they can't be who they are for so long. And yeah, cutting themselves, not wanting to shower. There's children who are binding their chest so tight that they've collapsed lungs. They have skin infections, not to mention tried to kill themselves. And I will tell you, we have known personally children who have taken their own lives and even children who have taken their own lives who had supportive parents. But because of the way society treats them and they know, again, they want to make their family happy. They don't want to make life harder for their family. And that's another burden that a lot of these children carry is that they don't want their their family to have to go through something harder, something that's going to be potentially expensive down the road. But that was a big moment for us and especially for Jeff. That was a huge moment for Jeff because I think in that moment he he finally felt like, I can't deny this and I need to face it because if I don't, there's potential that this could get really ugly. And speaking from a parent who had actually had that experience, that things were really ugly by not listening. For those who don't understand, how calamitous can it be for a transgender child to not have help and supports before the onset of puberty? It's really detrimental for children to not have help because you have these irreversible changes that start to happen to your body and you can't undo some of these changes, especially for trans girls who were assigned male at birth and then they start to go through a puberty that they don't align with. Their hands are getting bigger, their voices are getting deeper. You know, you have masculinization of the face the chest, the arms get bigger and broader, the shoulders. And you can't undo some of these changes that start to occur, even with a lot of money and and, and supportive families. My biggest destiny, I think, is to help identify these children before they get to puberty. Because if you can at least get to them before their body starts to change, if nothing else, you can at least buy time by pausing the button on puberty. And I don't know if people are aware of this, but there are puberty blockers that were actually invented for precocious puberty, which means some of the, some children who will start to go through puberty at four and five years old, which obviously is not supposed to happen. So these puberty blockers were actually created for children like that. So they're harmless and completely reversible. There's different forms, but there's actually like a little matchstick that you can have implanted in the arm and it just releases hormones and stops puberty. I just think it's imperative that if a child knows before puberty that they have these feelings and that they are trans, that we at least allow them the opportunity and, and, and explore more before they start having these irreversible changes that happen to their body. And once you get this very strong advice from the clinical social worker and gender therapist, Darlene Tando, you begin the slow, cautious commencement of adopting male pronouns and Ryland social transition. 
What happens when Ryland finally gets a major haircut? Uh, Ryland honestly had the biggest smile that we've ever seen before. And Rylan was a pretty happy child. I mean, considering all of these other things that were happening, but for the most part, a pretty happy kid. But we can honestly, and we say to this day, we had never seen Rylan so happy. It was like a rebirth, if you will. I made the mistake, not realizing it at the time, I made the mistake of sort of warning Ryland. Just so you know, the kids might not understand. And just so you know, you know, the parents might ask you questions. And I almost sort of inserted this fear into Rylan as an expectation that he needed to be different because these people weren't going to understand why he was doing that. And now looking back, I know that that was wrong of me to do that. But as a parent, I thought I was preparing him, giving him the equipment and the armor to be able to go and say, I'm a boy now. And and it, it actually had the reverse effect. It actually caused him to have anxiety and fear about what others thought of him. And so he initially wanted me to put it back on because I think he was afraid of how others would respond to him. And it was a very confusing moment as a parent. I didn't realize that that was what I had done. We are so conditioned and programmed to care what everybody thinks. From the second we are produced, it dominates most of our thinking. And it's so courageous as a parent to look in the eye of your child, knowing full well that there will be backlash, that there will be cruelty, that there will be very unkind comments, and just to say, screw that, Mm -hmm. I'm with you, no matter what. And that is a relationship you can count on for the rest of time. I can't guarantee that there won't be bullies in the schoolyard. I can't guarantee that people won't look sideways. I can't guarantee that people won't come out with horrific comments, but you know that I stand with you. Yep. And I think that's the biggest gift you can ever give your child is to let them know that you have their back, no matter what that means. And to be completely honest with you, I think for us, we sort of concoct this like idea in our head of how we want our children to be. I mean, I did it with my daughter. I am, I was an avid soccer player as a, as a teenager, and I really wanted her to love soccer. And I wanted to sort of almost like live vicariously through her. And, and as parents, we do this, we sort of have these interests that we, you know, that we have, and we want to insert ourselves into our children. And I think we're doing them such a huge disservice because yes, there are children, but we need to allow them to be who they are and not force them into our little box of who we think they should be. And the moment that we were able to do this with Ryland and really just let him be in the driver's seat when it came to expressing who he was, which is a very odd thing to do as a parent. But the second we were able to say to him, you tell us how you feel, where you're going with this. It was almost like this release. And it's such a freeing feeling to do that. And I, I, that's one thing I would like to encourage all the listeners to do. As parents, we just naturally do this. And, and, and I did it. I pictured Rylan walking down the aisle one day in a white wedding gown. And you know what? For one, what if my child doesn't even want to get married one day? What if my child doesn't even want to be a parent one day? You know, we need to stop doing that. As hard as it is, we have to really encourage them to be their individual selves and trust that we'll do a good job as parents teaching them to be good people. But just because they don't have our same interests and who we think they're going to be doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Beautifully put. 
Because you obviously can't avoid running into people who know you before Ryland's transition, what do you do 10 days after Ryland's hair is cut? I wrote a letter basically answering every question that I could before they had the opportunity to even ask it. I kind of just laid it all out on the line and said, this is what we've been going through. This is what's going on. This is who we've consulted with. This is where we're at and this is where we're going. And if you're not okay with it, please don't expect our relationship to grow from here. And I put that in bold print and I meant it. You know, once we figured out what we needed to do to, to help Rylan and be the support to him that we needed to be, I knew we were going to lose friends and family. I knew it. And I needed them to know that this was the line. And if you're not with us, then you're out. So I, yeah, I carried these letters in my purse because I knew that I would run into people at the grocery store and I just didn't want to have this conversation with them because explaining this to someone just brought up even more questions. And so it was sort of my protection because I was so tired of these awkward situations. And I felt like I had to educate the world on this. And people looked at me cross-eyed like I was nuts. And it just became harder for Ryland too. I had this letter in my purse and I carried it around and I was ready. (laughs) And also you would have had Ryland with you a lot of the time as well. So if people are coming up and asking really disturbing, unkind outlandish questions in front of your precious kid, you're going to want to protect the kid. So it was sort of a shorthand way of saying, here you go, take the letter and get back to me once you've had a chance to read it. And you can sort of circuit break that conversation. It's brilliant. It's ingenious. Yeah. And it sort of cut out all of the people that didn't write me after they got the letter. I knew where we stood and I could kind of trim the fat at that point. So a corollary of that might be, why is your cousin Melissa's wedding so painful for you? So... My brother had passed, so I was sort of an only child at this point. And the closest person in my life that was my family was my cousin, Melissa. And she had found this great man that she wanted to marry. He was this attorney, and he was from Texas, and big family, and strong religious guy. And they I was actually supposed to be the maid of honor in her wedding, and Rylan was supposed to be the flower girl. And... My, my cousin was a nurse at the time, and I thought, you know, being a medical professional and my family member that she would understand this and support me on this. She had seen everything leading up to this point, Rylan's masculine expression, all of that. But again, this doesn't really correspond to people with strong religious views for the most part, and especially at, at that time. She wasn't on board with this and she didn't understand it. And she wasn't willing to make Rylan her ring bearer. She didn't support it. She really didn't. She thought I was out of my mind. I remember saying to her, if you don't accept where we're at and what's going on, we will not be attending your wedding. And that was the most painful thing for me to do because she was everything to me. For one, I would never force Rylan to be in a dress ever again at that point. But the fact that she then said to me that she wanted to remove Rylan from her wedding completely, who Rylan adored her, by the way, adored her. So the fact that she wanted to take Rylan out of her wedding completely and then have my younger child, Brinley, as the flower girl, I was livid. I was not happy because I knew that that would devastate Rylan, absolutely devastate him. And I knew that she probably wasn't willing to change pronouns either. 
you know, if she wasn't willing to see Rylan as a little boy, she wasn't going to call him he. And so I knew it was at that point that I had to completely cut ties. And it was awful. But I had to do it. So I did it. Once Ryland transitions, what do you ask his school to do in terms of making it more safe and welcoming and hospitable for him? Because that was very urgent for you to do. Yeah, so he had to, you know, transition mid-school year at this school. And I knew that restrooms would be hard because, you know, he had been going into the girls' restroom up until that point. And I just worry that the kids wouldn't be okay with all of a sudden him now going into the boys' bathroom because they knew Rylan as a girl. And so there was a restroom in the classroom because it was like a kindergarten classroom. And I think the teacher just covered up the girl sign and the boy sign and made it so that it was gender neutral, which I think that's what she did to sort of make it easier for us. Can we talk about people's serious lack of shame in what they feel is appropriate to ask you about Ryland's transition? (laughs) Yeah, I'm so glad you're laughing (laughs) because like I'm horrified and obviously enough time has passed that you can laugh about this now, but I can promise you, you won't laugh at this time. Like, so what like, do people think that they're allowed to say? Right? It's so funny. Like, when is it okay to ask about a child's genitals? Can I just put it out there right now? I mean, no matter what, like, when is that okay? I have heard it all. I really have. And I think people are so obsessed about genitals these days, you know? Like, the funny thing is, is you don't ever see your neighbors, kids, genitals, and it doesn't matter. They go to the bathroom, they take care of business, they come out. You should never have to deal with that anyway. So why does it matter so much to people? Some of the things that people have asked me about Rylan's genitals, well, if he doesn't have a penis, how is he going to, you know, be married and, and have a relationship? And I just have to laugh because it's nobody's business except for Rylan and the person that he partners with one day. But people are so hyper obsessed about that piece of the puzzle. It doesn't matter. As a parent, how do we have the strength or robustness to push down really the dreams we have for the children in order to show up for who they need to be? Not who we want them to be, Mm -hmm. but who they actually need to be. Yeah, it's a really good question because I can honestly tell you I struggled a lot with the fact that Rylan may not be able to one day have biological children. Well, probably won't. And that was hard for me because I really do love being a mom so much. I love being a parent. I love the fact that I am able to create these beings that have a little piece of you, you know, a little piece of me. And and that was hard for me because I knew that if we headed down this path, that it was very likely that Rylan wouldn't be able to have that experience as a parent. And that was rough. But I remember talking to this other mom and she said to me, Hillary, if you don't support Ryland in this transition and as your son, he may not ever even get to childbearing age. And that was a reality check for me, not to mention the fact that Ryland may choose to not be a parent one day. He may not want to have children. And if he does, then there's so many different avenues that he can take. And truthfully, let's be honest, I mean, we don't know if any of our children are quote unquote capable or able to have children of their own until they get to the point that they start trying to do so. There's so many people that are plagued with infertility and don't even know it until they get to the point where they want to have children and they figure it out. 
they find a way there's adoption, there's surrogacy, there's all sorts of different avenues. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I would be lying if I said I didn't worry and, and feel sadness and grief over some of those things. But at the end of the day, to see your child happy and healthy and waking up every day excited for the day. And let me tell you, this kid is excited for the day every day. He has more happiness and excitement in his heart that I, I actually feel like, where did he come from? It's almost to a fault where he like he doesn't see the bad things or the sad things. This kid is so positive and so ready for anything that that's what really matters for me. You know, there's so many children and adults right now that are suffering with depression and anxiety. And it's so crazy to me because Rylan has none of those issues. I mean, he laughs that Jeff and I go to couples therapy. He's like, well, why do you need to do that? (laughs) You know, what do you need to say? And he's the only one in our family that doesn't go to therapy and he's just fine. You know, he thinks it's kind of crazy, but I'm telling you, I, I think it comes from us seeing him for who he is and supporting him and Yeah, that's all you want. That's all you should want as a parent is for your kid to be happy and healthy. It reminds me of a beautiful guest on my show, Stephanie Geis, who once said, and it will never, ever leave me, when you're faced with the unimaginable as a parent, whatever that might look like, without any judgment, but whatever that might look like, and in Stephanie's case, her child had significant mental illness, you can't always project into the future because you've just got to get that kid to the future. And it's very hard because we have these lifelong dreams for these progeny that we create. But the truth of the matter is one foot in front of the other and we've got to get them there. And and you and I have spoken about this. There have been cases, particularly in recent time, where people have regretted their transitions. Now, before I get a lot of hate mail, which thank God I've never received, that's not to suggest for two seconds that that's the majority. But a lot of these people who have decided that that wasn't their journey or their path have a lot of regret. And you know what? As I said, they are in the minority. But again, we're sort of expected to be Nostradamus and predict what's going to happen futuristically. The truth is we just can't. So if we have a child who's low today, sad today, miserable today, we can't just squash their pain because we're hopeful that if we ignore it and deny it, they will find themselves in a different situation down the track. Because that's playing Russian roulette with their lives. And to be honest with you, there is a chance that Rylan may one day, I don't think it's going to happen, but he knows that we would be open if one day he says, oh my gosh, this was a mistake. So what do we do? We transition back again. And you know, I think as parents, I don't know what my future holds. I'm literally just trying to do the best I can every day and who knows what tomorrow will bring, but I don't think we've made a mistake so far. If if things were to change, then you'd roll with it and you pivot and you figure it out. And I also want to say, because I don't think I said this at the beginning, that I only speak from the perspective as a parent of a transgender child who very neatly and nicely went from one box to the other. But I can tell you that my child is very happy, very confident, and I don't think that I would change anything at this point. Hillary, what's the genesis of the glorious YouTube video you make about Ryland. It's been seen, I believe, by more than 8 million people worldwide. It's unbelievable. I was wondering if that was kind of your shorthand way of having the equivalent of the letter in your pocket that you could just pull out. But I know that you actually really struggled with whether or not this should 
go out into the world? That wasn't something that you had intended originally when you made it. No, that was actually never intended to be released. That was created for the sole purpose of educating the staff at Ryland School because I knew this was so new and something that I wanted them to support and understand, but I had to really give them the background and and really just some sort of piece that would really help them get to where I was. And so when I created that video, it was for the sole purpose of educating the staff at Ryland School. And it morphed into being released. Uh, it's a long series of events, but in a nutshell, uh, Ryland spoke one day at the LGBT Center and asked at five years old to share this video that I had created. And at that point, I, this thing was under lock and key. I was so afraid of it getting out into the world. And so we knew at the LGBT Center, it was a safe place where it would be fine to show it. But in that crowd, there were some leaders in the community that saw the the power behind the video and wanted to give Ryland an award and recognize him at a larger event in the community, which was the Harvey Milk Breakfast. And um, Harvey Milk was very well known for being an outspoken out gay man in a time where it was very dangerous. And actually, he ended up losing his life for being out. Um, I knew that if Ryland got up and received that award and we showed that video, there was really no turning back because Harvey Milk's quote was, rights are only won by those who make their voices heard. And you can't really get up and receive an award on behalf of an individual who lost their life doing that and then go back into the closet. And so once Ryland received that award in San Diego in front of 2,000 people, at this turning point, we realized that we could either help change lives and be a voice for change and show that we've done nothing wrong and that our child is amazing and awesome and wonderful just as he is, or we could go back in the closet and hide. And at that time, and even now, nobody wants to be the poster child for this topic. For one, it's dangerous. For two, you have a lot of people that are never going to change their mind about how they feel about this topic, especially a young child transitioning. I mean, that was a huge backlash that we got. How can you let a child do this? I was so confident with our decision after seeing how Ryland transformed in the, even just the first day or two. I had done a lot of research at that point, and I just knew that we were making the right decision. And I knew that eventually the data would come out and the research would come out that we were doing it right. And thankfully it has. There's been data released now that, that this, is, this is how you handle trans kids. You allow them to socially transition and they're seeing much higher levels of confidence and lower levels of depression. And, and this is the way to do it, folks. But at the time we had no data behind us and we were sort of groundbreaking in that we were doing something that a lot of people hadn't done and, and surely hadn't done publicly. That was the big part is that people did not want to be publicly showing that they were allowing their children to transition at his age. And it was so beautifully done. And I would encourage anybody to see it. I think it's a seven minute film, but it basically just shows very honestly the journey. Yep. It was from a mama's heart. It was quite magical. Thank you. I want you to tell me about your incredible son, Ryland, today. That makes me want to cry just because I'm so proud of both my kids, you know, but Ryland, all of those fears I had about maybe him being bullied or not accepted or sitting off to the side and just not being included, all of those fears 
I can just throw in the trash because we have the exact opposite going on now. We have a child who, or a teenager, I should say, he's like a young man who was voted vice president of his school. He's on the water polo team and thriving, um, has tons of friends. I mean, this kid has more friends than he than he needs. He's got, you know, girlfriends, guy friends. He's accepted by the football players. He's accepted by all the kids. They all love him because there's nothing not to love about him. He's just a kind, loving, fun, smart kid. You know, he's in honors classes. I mean, he's just doing everything that any parent would want their child to do. He's just happy and he's a hard worker and he's funny and he's He's not to mention he's super cute. Not that that, you know, matters, but he's, you know, very easy on the eyes. So the ladies love him, (laughs) but he's just a good kid. You know, deep down, he's a, he's a heart of gold. And there's a girl that just moved next door. Her dad just passed away. She's struggling. She's new to the neighborhood. And these are the moments that make me so proud. He took her under his wing and took her to the orientation the first day because she didn't know anyone. And it's moments like that where it's, you know, I don't care about anything else. I want my kid to be a good human. I want him to be loving. I want him to be kind, respectful, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Please and thank you. Eat his vegetables. He's all of the things that I think we should really strive for in our kids, just to be good humans. Beautiful, wise warrior of a mama, Hillary. If nothing else, I hope that our conversation, which has been so precious for me, encourages more compassion and gentleness. I have always believed that we know less than nothing about what goes on in other people's lives. And whilst we might not have all the answers, this conversation behoves us to care more, to judge less, and to lead with kindness. So I just want to thank you so much for being gentle with me. Thank you for trusting me and believing that my curiosity comes from a place of love and perhaps in experience, but not in the least from judgment. And, you know, whilst our parenting journeys are different, thank you without knowing for teaching me to be a better listener, a better mother, and hopefully a better advocate. So much love to you and your beyond handsome and ridiculously talented son, Ryland, who's been walking past in the background and I've had such a joy to see him. to your gorgeous daughter, Brinley, and your lovely, lovely husband, Jeff. I don't know how to thank you, but thank you for joining me on Brave Journeys. This has been magical. Well, thank you for using your platform to open hearts and continue love. And I appreciate you taking this opportunity to allow me to share this story. And I I truly do hope that there are listeners out there that maybe just look at this a little differently and have more kindness in their heart for people who are struggling and all different parts of the world with all different stories. So thank you so much. I'm. It's my pleasure. And I hope this isn't the last time we get to chat. <laughs> no, I'm counting on the port. Lots of love. Bye. It was wonderful to have you join us today. The brave journey of my next guest is simply extraordinary, and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Brave Journeys was created, hosted, and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg and Ursula Ferguson. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. And if you love the show, please don't forget to tell your friends and family about it, rate it, and leave a review. That's what keeps us on air. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. 
I'm Tam Faraday, and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.